Hi everyone, my name is Danielle Solish. And my name is Iman Chaudhry, and you're listening to the fifth episode of Seeing Clearly, a pre-clerkship guide to all things ophthalmology. On today's episode, we actually will be interviewing two guests, Dr. Max Gelkopf and Dr. John Liu. So I'm going to begin by introducing Dr. Max Gelkoff. So Max graduated from biomedical sciences at the University of Guelph in 2018. He then completed his MD at McMaster University, graduating in 2021. He is currently a resident physician at Western University in their ophthalmology program. Right now, Max is off service on pediatric emergency medicine and will continue to be off service until June, completing rotations and specialties that will enhance his ophthalmology education. And so a little bit about our next guest, Dr. John Liu, is that he's also a first year ophthalmology resident, but at Queen's University. He completed his undergraduate studies at Queen's University Medical School um, at University at British Columbia, and he completed a research fellowship with Dr. Ike Ahmed in Toronto before he began his residency. He's currently doing a block of ophthalmology before he starts in CTU slash internal medicine next. So with all of that being said, we feel very fortunate to have two first year residents with us today. So we'd again like to introduce Dr. Max Galkoff and Dr. John Liu. So I guess uh, just to get us started, um, do you guys mind telling us how you both know each other and kind of introducing yourselves to, to our guests? I can start off for that one, Max here. Uh, so I, my first exposure to John was actually uh, watching his juggling video during the American Academy of Ophthalmology virtual conference. And I was like, who is this cool guy and how can I be his friend? Um, he was recording a video doing quite the juggling routine to, I think it was BTS Dynamite, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it worked very quickly. But we actually met um, through a mutual friend who was also applying to ophthalmology. Uh, and we were fortunate that a group of us got together and supported each other throughout the interview process. Um, and although we couldn't meet in person like previous years had throughout the CARM cycle, uh, we met virtually and started a group chat and were able to talk about our experience uh, and grow closer that way. So it was really nice to get to know each other that way. And most recently, we've been uh, hounding each other, prepping for studying for step two exams. So mm -hmm. I don't know should I provide my perspective? That. Like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah so, so that's really interesting. Uh, I didn't know I made such an impression from the juggling <laughs> video. I, Max had mentioned that he saw it. I just didn't know if he like specifically even remembered like the song and everything. Anyway, um, so my first like exposure to Max with you, I guess, was through like a mutual friend named Vicky or Victoria Liu, who's also a PGY1 Opto resident at, at Ottawa. Um, and I had known her because she was also completing a research fellowship and then amidst the virtual CARMS tour, she texted me one day saying like, hey, do you want to get added to this group chat with other opto applicants? And I was like, sure. And then so I was just like thrown in and then Max was in the group and then I was, that, that's how I met him. And that was my first exposure to him. I didn't know he already had like a preconceived like uh, idea of who I was. This is very interesting. It's the first time hearing of this. <laughs> yeah. It's so yeah. I would say my two takeaways from that were number one, everyone should juggle because you're going to make a great impression. And number two is that all applicants in the CARM cycle, especially applying to the same uh, residency program are very collaborative and want to help one another. And that's something really positive to hear. 
Um, just a quick question for the both of you. So since you guys just transitioned into residency, could you speak a little bit about what that transition was like, like going from a clerk to now being a resident in such a short period of time? Yeah, I can start with that. So I think, um, first of all, it, in many ways, it feels like you don't deserve the transition because you know you were just a medical student most like recently. And for myself, it's a little different because I did a research fellowship in between. But even then, like I don't think I gained any more clinical responsibility during that year. So for most applicants, going from like a medical student level to like a resident level, it almost feels like you're still a medical student at first. And so the increased responsibility is a little daunting at first. Um, I know for myself, I'm a bit fortunate because Queen starts with ophthalmology on service for their first block. So I'm kind of in my comfort zone. And so that um, for myself feels a little bit like it probably a little bit better had I started with like CTU, which I have next. Um, and because um, there's always a senior resident nearby in the emergency eye clinic, it doesn't feel too difficult or too like, like too much of a I'm being thrown into the stick of it, like all by myself, I feel like I'm quite well supported. Um, so even though I do have like this, a bit of an increased expectation, I don't feel like I'm completely alone. So that's my experience, at least. I feel that Max may say something different because I know he's not on yet. I believe he's doing pediatric emerge, but he can, I'll let him take it away. Yeah, so uh, each school is different. And this is one of the things that we learned throughout the interview process, just seeing how each school approaches first year. For example, being in med school at Mac, I know that their program brings all the ophthalmology residents back to ophthalmology every Wednesday for a clinic. Um, whereas Western, we have no ophthalmology exposure really till June of our first year. Uh, and we're off service completing rotations in peds emerge, adult emerge, rheumatology, allergy and immunology, ENT, all the supporting specialties that are seen as helpful to support your education in ophthalmology. Uh, I actually really appreciate starting off, off service. I think uh, I was always scared starting on service of these higher expectations that this is what your specialty is. Like if you embarrass yourself or don't know something, I think that that's something like it's common and I know that everyone would support you and it's really a great specialty where everyone's quite understanding and there is always more to learn. But I think starting off service kind of sets you with that lower expectations. When you introduce yourself as the ophthalmology resident and Pete's merge, the question is kind of like, what are you doing here? Um, and so there's that bit of lower expectations. And I feel like it's actually like that nice stepping stone in the middle before getting onto service um, where you're learning what you're gonna be doing for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. So I really like that kind of learning the foundation first uh, and then moving into what you're gonna specialize in. Right, and just a quick follow-up question either of you could answer, but how do you feel that the responsibility changes from when you were a clerk to now when you're a resident? Like, are there different expectations of you? So I would say it's a bit different for me because um, because I'm studying on ophthalmology. Um, the the residents at Queens are all very supportive and nice, and they they tell us like, don't worry, we have very low expectations. Like you know, you might have even forgotten a lot of things given that you know you had CARMS interviews in like a summer. So I don't feel like there are like any more heightened expectations than there were when I was uh, an elective medical student. But what I do feel is different is that there's more uh, of an acknowledgement that um, we will be doing this as a career and therefore they spend more time teaching us. So if there's an interesting case, they, they'll say things like, okay, you're gonna see this a lot. This is what you do. Um, you're gonna, you know, like, they'll get us more hands-on things. So if there's like a foreign body, they're more inclined to have us try removing it. 
Um, whereas I didn't, I don't feel like I got that much as a medical student. It was more just like, okay, well, this is something interesting that you can see, but now we're kind of doing more things, I'd say. So that, that I feel is different, the, the approach towards teaching. But in terms of expectations, like at least for me, maybe I'm just really like ignorant and maybe I'm not aware that they're expecting more, but I don't feel the pressure to have to perform at like, you know, a PGY2 level when you're like actually running the Emerge Eye Clinic, at least not yet. I mean, it's great to hear that both of you are having, you know, such different, I guess, experiences within both ophthalmology programs, but at the same time, such a positive experience. Sounds like everyone is very helpful and collaborative, which is really, really nice to hear when you're, when you're starting out. So I guess like a little bit more about ophthalmology specifically, um, do you guys maybe mind talking a little bit about um, your path to ophthalmology and whether or not you're interested in other specialties and kind of your journey to how you found um, optho and, and how you got to where you are today? I'll start with this one. Uh, so my path to ophthalmology is quite an interesting one. I started medical school with ophthalmology research, uh, having done that in my undergrad, uh, not for the purpose or interest in ophthalmology, but actually for the interest in pediatric oncology. So all of my research was with the retinoblastoma group in Toronto. And I found this lab purely out of an interest in pediatric oncology, never once thinking about ophthalmology beforehand. Uh, and then in my exploration early in medical school, I was exploring different specialties. I dabbled a little thinking about internal. I thought about um, family and, and I had eventually ruled out pediatric oncology in that initial interest uh, and then came to find ophthalmology completely by chance. So I had a preceptor who filled in for, um, so it was my one of my pre-clerkship uh, tutorials and my tutor was six or husband filled in for her and we remember sitting there that day being like who is her husband is this even a doctor like what's happening uh, and in walks this like really cool guy it's really young and uh, he says hi I'm Dr. Chan I'm an ophthalmologist and I'm Dr. Tam's husband so we met him that way uh, and when he learned about my interest in research uh, in retinoblastoma he invited me to shadow him in clinic uh, and it was through my exposure there that I really found ophthalmology and didn't think anything of it beforehand. Uh, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I initially thought, okay, no, I don't wanna do this. I don't wanna apply to something competitive. I don't wanna be scared about matching for all of medical school. And then as I continued to explore, I just, I didn't find anything that gave me that same spark and that same interest and the same joy that when I saw patients, I felt like I could be doing that for the rest of my life. Uh, so. I continued along the path and here I am. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, I guess we'll turn it over to Dr. Liu to, to tell his journey about his path to ophthalmology. Yeah, sure. So I, um, I actually discovered ophthalmology a little later. Um, so when I started medical school, I was pretty open-minded on what I wanted to do. And um, actually for a while, I had thought about doing derm, so dermatology. Uh, but mainly because actually my older sister is a dermatologist. And so when I started med school, I was kind of influenced by her. She was telling me how great it was. She was a resident at the time. And so um, I started like shadowing dermatologists and I did a bit of derm research, but it wasn't anything super significant. Uh, but when I actually got more exposure to derm, I realized um, that it wasn't as interesting as I thought it would be. Uh, I think what I liked about derm though, was that you could make visual diagnoses like clinically without like waiting around for blood work or anything. And there was a mixture of like outpatient work with 
hands-on aspects because of, you know, small uh, biopsies you could do, or you could even do Mohs surgery. Um, so actually it's interesting because at UBC we're required to do one week of uh, derm and one week of ophthalmology, uh, and that's mandatory in clerkship. And they're always one after the other. And so when I went through that, um, I had like a whole week of derm, like, you know, every day. Um, that's when I realized that like, it wasn't that exciting to me. And I also didn't enjoy studying it as much. Um, but then when I did ophthalmology right after, I realized that it was everything I thought derm would be, but way more interesting. And I would actually find myself like, like looking up primary literature based on things that like preceptors told me about because I just found um, the field more interesting to study. I also appreciated how things were anatomical. And so a lot of ophthalmic um, diseases can be traced back to the anatomy of the eye. Um, and so like, I was just, I've always been a visual learner. Uh, I think that's what drew me to Derm, but I realized Opto was just as visual um, and had even more hands-on aspects while also being clinic-based since it is also, you know, there's a lot of actual surgeries that you do in ophthalmology. And so like, that was kind of this big like paradigm shift for me. Um, and it, was, it wasn't until like halfway through third year. So I think it was, I remember a November of my third year um, and, and clerkship in IUBC started in the summer. So yeah, so that was kind of a, 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 kind of like a, almost um, a turning point for me. Like I was really unsure what to do. Should I go for opto? Um, and that's when I started asking around and I, and I knew that these research fellowships existed. And so in my mind, I went into the CARM cycle thinking I'm going to give it my all for the first time I apply, but if it doesn't work out, I can do a research here and apply again. And so that was kind of my approach. So I changed all my electives last minute, but because I decided like I couldn't even get a UBC elective, which is where I did med school, uh, but I did everything I could. And then, um, you know, I think by like January, the following year, I had solidified my decision and just went full force for off though. And, and yeah, and that's, that's kind of the, the gist of it and how I, I, how I was uh, kind of welcomed into the world of ophthalmology. Thank you both for sharing that. We both really appreciate it. And I'm sure all our listeners appreciate it as well. Just hearing that so many people take so many paths and it takes, you know, learning what you love and also learning what you don't love in order to end up in the fields that you guys are in now. Um, so I know you guys originally spoke a little bit about how your day-to-day -day lives are different, especially because the residency programs are different inherently. Um, could either of you, I don't know if either of you even know this, speak to like what are similar about residents, like the ophthalmology residency programs, even if like the order of the way that you do things is a little bit different? Yeah, sure. I can, I can start with this one. Well, I think the first thing that jumps out to me as similar amongst all Canadian ophthalmology residents is uh, the TORIC course that we all do at the end of PGY1. So uh, TORIC, which is a really cool pun, uh, stands for Toronto Ophthalmology Resident Introductory Course, I believe. Mm -hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. But um, uh, it's, it's always at the end. So the last six weeks of PGY1, all the residents in Canada meet in Toronto. Um, and it's a good chance to, for everyone to just also meet each other and get to know each other in person. Um, and we go over kind of the basics of ophthalmology um, and there's lectures done by pretty well renowned Toronto faculty. Um, and I think it's, I, I, this year it was like partially virtual, partially in person because of COVID. Uh, I think the year before it was all virtual, but hopefully for 2022 and Max and I's year, um, hopefully that'll be all in person. Uh, so that's a really cool thing that I think is consistent with, well, what is consistent with all ophthalmology programs, um, because um, 
although it's different what you do off service, it's similar in the sense that we're all doing off service for the first year. And then we have that Torah course to kind of give us like a refresher of everything in ophthalmology and prepare us to go into PGY2, where from that point onwards, we're kind of really just exclusively doing ophthalmology. And I think it is quite similar, like from that point onwards, like PGY2 to five across Canadian ophthalmology programs. Um, yeah, so that's, that's one thing. I don't know if Max wants to jump in with something else. Uh, I think it's recognized that in Canada, no matter where you end up, no matter what school, you're going to get a fantastic education. And at the end of the day, be an ophthalmologist, like all schools provide very good educational experiences. Um, they all differ slightly, really in exactly the order of how they do things. But the general gist of residency is that off service at the beginning, followed by your PGY two year in most schools is that resident eye clinic, the emergency clinic. And you're, it's kind of that heavy year. It's seen as one of the more difficult years of residency. Uh, then you rotate through all the different subspecialties within ophthalmology. Um, sometimes orders missed up, um, switch to different schools, and then typically you'll have kind of that uh, cataract year. So you'll have the year where you really hone in on your cataract skills. Uh, and then I believe in fifth year, um, you'll come back through a lot of the different subspecialties and gives you that opportunity to get exposure to what you want to be doing uh, and kind of tailor your own experience to your interests uh, and gain further electives and experiences in the subspecialties that you're interested in. Uh, so that's really kind of similar all across Canada. And I think it just speaks to the, the way the educational program is created. I believe next year, uh, ophthalmology is actually moving to the uh, oh, I'm forgetting the acronym. Uh, CBMs is already there. <laughs> CBME, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, so Queens has already done it, uh, but the rest of Canada is moving to the CBME model uh, next year for ophthalmology, I believe. Uh, so that'll kind of change how things work, and it'll be interesting to see how that works. Well, thank you both for kind of outlining, I guess, what your your next five years are gonna gonna look like. It's um. It's nice to see that there are definitely enough similarities and differences across the program so that students can kind of, you know, pick what fits them best, but also at the end of the day, you guys are all getting very similar uh, background in terms of uh, your education and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, you two are both in ophthalmology programs kind of on different ends of the, the province, but uh, do you guys mind talking a bit about how you interact with each other now that you're in different programs or how you maintain, I guess, uh, your relationship across the province in two different programs? I can start with that one. So I'd say that really this group chat um, that we created uh, during our um, application process is one of the main forms of communication. And we took include an ophthalmology pun uh, named it the pupils because we thought that would be funny uh, and it's really just a way like we'll vent about different things going on whether it's off service and we're struggling or staying late we'll vent to each other or just have a question about something ophthalmology or non-ophthalmology related um, so it's really nice to kind of have that um, platform and outlet to chat with one another um, but I think John and I's bonding has really been over this experience uh, with step two he actually convinced me to write it uh, sitting at my house studying for MCC exam um, he was like okay you should do step two and then on that spot we both signed up for the exam and have been going through that experience now more recently um, yeah actually yeah so the group chat's a great way to stay in touch um, we text each other occasionally about studying for step two and that's something that I'm also like trying to figure out like anyway well we won't go there but um, I think another thing was like 
um, you know, Queens and Western aren't too far and both of our homes are in Toronto. And I think a few weeks ago, we were supposed to like almost meet up, but apparently Max didn't even end up going to Toronto, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I'm sure something will be planned in the near future. Um, because uh, I guess the good thing about Ontario is like a lot of the schools are quite close. It's all kind of within driving distance. And uh, I do visit home a lot and I'm sure Max does as well. So we will plan some more meetups if Max actually makes it. <laughs> And um, yeah, I think the, uh, the LMCC studying was really key in, in connecting us. And I think that'll hopefully continue with the step two uh, studying as well. Yeah. Honestly, who would have thought that studying for a large exam would bring so many people together, but that's very nice to hear. And I hope that I would have the same support if I end up eventually one day taking a step two exam. But yeah, thank you for sharing that. It's also nice to hear like how close you are and maintain this relationship like virtually through COVID through this all. So that's great. Um, now we're gonna just flip the switch. So we're done. We finished with our you know ophthalmology, medical related questions and we always end up with two would you rathers for our guests. So um, I, it would be great if you could both answer each of them. So maybe after I ask this, like John could answer this first and then Max and then Iman will ask the next one. Um, really putting them on the spot there. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am putting them on the spot. They're not too challenging, I promise. Okay, so my first would you rather is, would you rather work more hours per day, but fewer days in the week, or fewer hours per day, but more days in the week? Right, yeah, this is a good question. I think I would actually rather work more hours per day and few days, fewer days in the week. Um, and I sense this might be the more popular option, to be honest, when I, because I've also asked this to my friends. And I think the idea then is, you know, if you kind of group it all together, you have maybe four days off where you could do whatever you want, because I feel like my approach is I'd rather like combine the pleasure time, I guess, like to all in one, instead of like splitting it out and sprinkling it. Cause then you can like, you can go somewhere Well, COVID pending. You can like maybe travel somewhere. Um, you can like, you know, the traveling time to go somewhere is always the limiting factor of like whether you want to explore a different area. So I could even like drive to a different city, fly somewhere. Um, and then also, I just think like I relax best when I know that I have time to relax. Mm -hmm. um, I think like, you know, if I have just a few hours in a day to like relax, like I'm relaxing, but I know that I'm going to have to go to work the next day. And even if it's just a few hours the next day, like work is still work. And I feel like that getting into that mentality of doing something like, you know, do, getting to your professional mindset is kind of tiring on its own. Mm -hmm. So I'd rather have like a string of few, like a few days, like more than two or three days of just time off. So that would be my response. I will take the opposite approach. Uh, and oh, interesting. I am, yeah, I know. Uh, I'm definitely a fan of kind of that wellness throughout your everyday activities. Uh, I'd like to come home, uh, maybe get some exercise, make dinner. Like those are like kind of my daily wellness enjoyment things. And I think that if I'm working the long hours and have no opportunity to do that on a regular basis, that'd be something that I miss. So I think I'd certainly go the other route. Glad to hear uh, that uh, opposites attract. This is why you guys make good study study partners. <laughs> um, for, the, for the next question, um, for movies based off of a book, would you rather read the book or just watch the movie? Uh, 100% read the book as evidenced by my Harry Potter collection back there. Uh, I refuse to watch a movie. Uh, if I'm planning on reading the book, I will always read the book first. 
But when you find out that there's a book adaption of a movie really like after the fact, then I'll actually go back and read the book. So I'm a read the book before the movie first. And John? Yeah, I think this is an interesting one. I think in theory, I'm the book before the movie type. Um, and I also like, um, you know, read all the Harry Potter series before watching the movies. And I made a, a point to do that. And I made a point to judge people who didn't do that. <laughs> but then I realized as I, you know, got older and then things got busier that there were actually a lot of books or a, a lot of movies that I watched uh, that had books that they were based off of that I, I knew that before even watching the movie, but I was like, oh, it's fine. I'll just read the book after. And I never did, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I, I, I got to say, I think I'm evolving. And this question itself is making me question whether I should go back to that mindset I had before. <laughs> because like, it's always nicer, in my opinion, to read the book first, because it's based on the book, you're getting the original deal. And you get what the original author truly wanted to share as a message. And I think there's more meaning in that. Um, and also, it's just better to read. I feel like nowadays, we don't really have as much time to read. And I like I respect people who have time to like do all their academic and professional things and still find time to read for enjoyment. Um, so yeah, I, I let's say I, I hope to be that type, but I currently am not. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I honestly, I relate. I also find it very interesting after I read a book and see who I picture the characters to look like. And then you see yeah. who the cast in the, the movies and TV shows. And it's, it's always something that like intrigues me. But anyway, that wraps up everything today. So again, thank you so much to the both of you for coming and taking the time to speak with us here. Yeah, thank you guys both so much for, for joining us. And thank you to everyone else for, for listening to this episode of Seeing Clearly, a pre-clerkship guide to all things ophthalmology. Um, and so to stay caught up with everything else that iCurriculum is doing, be sure to check out our website at www.icurriculum.com and follow us on Instagram at iCurriculum. Uh, so again, thank you, Dr. Gelkop and Dr. Liu for joining us. Uh, and thank you everyone for listening. Bye. Thank you. Bye.